like your idea. Yeah, I mean, I was I was thinking about it. I was, so I, I reread some of uh, what's what do you call it? It's quite surprising. You come back to uh, you come back to someone like Kant. The first time I read Kant, I found it insanely hard. But you come back to Kant after reading someone like Blues and Watery, it becomes quite simple. <laughs> And I, I, I reread uh, like half of um, we call it uh, uh, Prolegomena to any future metaphysics, and, I, and I, I, oh, okay. I, I'd like to say I'm pretty confident that in terms of argumentation, because you know uh, pure reason for Kant is what allows the synthesis, you know, Kant synthesis of apprehension and all that jazz. It's 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 possible via pure reason. So, I mean, for the losing Guadri, all these synthesis is possible via desire in the same manner. So there's something very, there's something very transcendental about their arguments now. And hence they posit unconscious as being the, the, uh, the psychoanalysis as being the metaphysics. Yeah, I think you're onto something. It, just like Zizek talks about Parmenides uh, as his paradoxes as being... Uh, a model of desire. Similarly, it could be that uh, pure reason for Kant is is a similar thing. It's you know, I mean, I, I think it's definitely a similar thing, right? Syllogisms and paralogisms—that's all Kantian terminology thrown in there, right? And then sure. they, they also they also take the body without organs because. Uh, Kant has that beautiful part in the Critique of Pure Reason where he he talks about the disjunctive syllogism, um, God implying disjunctions, and the body without organs works in a similar manner. So I really think, this, you know, there's a, what's what's that guy's name, that big uh, Deleuze scholar. I don't know how far I would agree with his interpretation, but he's pretty he's pretty certain. I think his name's uh, Eugene Holland. Yeah, Eugene W. Holland. He, he wrote a book called Paul and Schizoanalysis. But he... Um, He's pretty he's pretty uh, monolithic about this idea that uh, it's a thousand plateaus is the losing lottery trying to complete Kant's critical project, where if Kant accounted for all poss- for all possible experience, the losing lottery we're looking for all experience as a whole to create a transcendental system for all of that. But uh, I digress. Uh, Ken's asking a question: How much of Lacan? Do you think uh, Deleuze and Guattari read, and do you think it was a close reading? So, um, Gu- so I don't know if you know this, but Guattari was a former student of Lacan, and uh, uh, what happened was, I think uh, Guattari and Lacan were good friends, but then uh, <laughs> Lacan made uh, Jacques Alain Miller like his successor. I think this this sort of led into the sort of uh, uh, vitriol you see that <laughs> the way they write, where they sort of pissed off Guattari a lot. But I mean, one thing that there's a big misunderstanding is it's not some sort of takedown of Lacan and Freud and all these psychoanalysts, right? I think one of the best descriptions I've heard is that they're actually trying to save they're trying to save Lacan from Lacan's own downfall, and. Uh, um, you know, they don't deny the symbolic order. They don't deny Oedipus, but uh, they're looking at it from this holistic, holistic systems. And there's a much more nuance than most people give it credit. So I'd say how much of Lacan does this in Guadalupe? I'd say it's definitely a close reading, right? In, in, the, in the case that Guadalupe was a former student. 
Yeah, I think the key word here is that they don't deny any of Lacan's ideas. They go with it, right? They even, they even take a lot of influence from it, right? They take the idea of the unary trait and the, signif- the, the signifying chain that gets created, except what they do is they, they elaborate it, right? Rather than just, uh, you know, considering this closed system that psychoanalysis has, you know, they look at the entire social field. They basically think, okay, how, I think what, what they're trying, better word would be, you know, improving Oedipus or something like that. Can I ask though, I think my original question, I think in the, wherever I put it, was about page 108, where they said, um, schizoanalysis sets out to explore a transcendental unconscious rather than a metaphysical one. I know we've discussed this probably a thousand times. I'm just a bit behind and discombobulated. So I was, I was just wondering if, well, I'm trying to understand the difference between a transcendental unconscious and a metaphysical unconscious. The, the metaphysical would be transcendent. Yeah. So, um, did you see what I wrote, though? Because I just want to double check if, if there's anything. I tried to simplify a lot of have a look. I'll have a look. So, I, I'm happy to just read it out, though. So, I said that, uh, I said that uh, in terms of just looking at argumentation style of the book, I think the way, um, the way their understanding of desire is very similar to and I'm talking solely in terms of like meta philosophy, solely in terms of argument, not necessarily looking at the concept, but just looking at the way they structured the book. Um, it's what Kant calls pure reason in the critique of pure reason operates in a similar way to Deleuze's con- Deleuze and Guattari's concept of desire, right? So Kant has a set of uh, syllogistic syntheses, and these syllogistic syntheses of Kant uh, correlate to Deleuze's connective synthesis, disjunctive synthesis, and conjunctive synthesis. And what these are, they, they work as the transcendental conditions of the possibility of experience. So what transcendental conditions are there? It's the question of, okay, so... What what are, what are the possible what what conditions allow experience to be a possibility? That's what transcendental conditions are, and that's how the connective and disjunctive syntheses works. So for uh, Kant, the system the, these syntheses were only possible because uh, you had pure reason. But Deleuze were doing something with the unconscious rather than you know some epistemological critique. So we're doing an unconscious critique. So for Deleuze, they're operated via desire. Desire is what allows these syntheses to occur, and they work as the conditions for allowing the possibility of experience. So since transcendental conditions are what constitute possible experience, in a strictly Kantian sense, they are the imminent critique for our understanding of the truth of the unconscious, right? They say that the syllogisms, the syllogisms, they they have a a direct line where they say that the syllogisms are the uh, the direct being of desire. It's the direct nature of desire to follow these syntheses these syntheses. And uh, hence, uh, if the transcendental conditions are what constitute all possible experience, that means that they're the imminent criteria for our understanding of truth of the unconscious. And imminent for Kant in the system is that, you know, it's not, it's not like we're, we're not doing some sort of Hegelian thing where we're projecting onto the future, right? We're, it's something that's already in there. It's, it's, uh, our, it's, I don't want to use this word because it might cause confusion, but it's a priori, right? It's already, it's present before anything else. Uh, it's present before any experience because if it's what allows experience it needs to be present before experience and hence it's completely imminent right it's what's taken as a gift the a priori and uh, um, hence any knowledge that would mean that any knowledge that does not conform itself to these transcendental conditions right the connective synthesis disjunctive synthesis conjunctive synthesis anything that doesn't conform itself to that can be regarded as metaphysics and so in Kantian terminology, Kant calls that the paralogisms. 
So in this case, rather than using transcend con transcendental conditions of the unconscious, psychoanalysis uh, opts for paralogistic metaphysics. They ask the question of uh, they, it's it's uh, they they have, con they, have they, they have misunderstood the the proper conditions that allow these things to come into being. You know, Freud it, it triangulates and stuff, right? And metaphysics that allow itself to be restricted to the domain of repression, representation, I mean. So, uh, you know, how, how, so in this chapter, one of the main questions they were asking was, how, how is it that psychology can come to the conclusion that, uh, okay, the Oedipus complex works in this way? How is it that they come to the conclusion that the unconscious structure, like, I mean, you know, the, the, the father mommy complex, all that stuff happens. Why, why does that happen, right? It's, and then they told us this time it's it's due to the uh, the prohibition of incest, right? The prohibition of incest has all these signifiers where the flows of desire get trapped in certain locales, and it, you know, kind of think one way to visualize it is it gets stuck in a sort of rut, right? And uh, so what happens is the metaphysics are conditioned for a transcendent metaphysical unconscious rather than a transcendent transcendental one. A transcendental unconscious would be one that well constitutes itself on these objective syntheses rather than these syntheses that are based on representation, right? The representation comes from the prohibition of incest. And it's from those representations where you get this sort of very hermeneutic thing, right? This, this game of interpretation of the representation. Oh, so it's your father. Oh, so it's your mother. Uh, metaphysical uh, corresponds to representational statements. So, um, Yes, it's it's it, it is a representation that's uh, that that's at play at psychoanalysis, and but the but I think the key here, if you're going to ask the question of metaphysics, the key here for psychoanalysis, it, the only reason why it's metaphysics is because it's not imminent, right? There is an imminent law at work with the three syntheses, and if it if it's if it doesn't correspond to the a priori conditions that allow possible experience that would mean that it's something external right it's something it's something that they're just you know it's it's it's, it's out there but the thing is we, we we don't want to forget that oedipus is not real right so that's why we have this idea of representation because representation is what cuts desire into certain forms of uh, movement and from cutting representation into certain when the desire is cut into certain forms of movement that's when things like the oedipus complex become possible right that's when uh my mommy daddy issues start coming into play uh i'll try i'll try and retype it then if that doesn't help how much no it's a brilliant explanation i think i'm just um so all over the place that I'm, I, and I think I have such like groundwork to do in a lot of this stuff that I'm finding it really hard to understand. But I have to keep going back and think about it. You know, basically the Freudian idea is that the unconscious is a transcendent. I mean, transcendent. Right. Transcend, 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 transcendental means that you're within the realm the imminent realm but you're looking out on something which is giving you these uh synthesized objects and you don't know where they come from but the transcendental idea of you know the idea of possibility the uh conditions of possibility of experience is that um even though you're within the imminent realm and you're being given these syntheses by the unconscious um uh you you can say well there must be this in order to get this synthesis or there must be that because in order to get this synthesis 
so that's what Kant's doing. He's within the imminent realm, but he's looking out on the transcendent and uh, saying what uh, needs needs to have happened for those syntheses to occur. But the but but it's an, another thing completely to have uh, the transcendent unconscious because that's completely unknown. And and in fact. Uh, uh, you know, I've been putting I've been putting the quotes up from D. H. Lawrence, and he has this idea. I, I think if, if 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 you guys are curious about D. H. Lawrence's connections to uh, Deleuze and Guattari, uh, D. H. Lawrence, like he was, I think he was quite outspokenly against the whole psychoanalysis thing, right? But and, uh, the uh, he was even some connections to that whole idea of like you know psychoanalysis, and he has. Uh, it's, it's, it, you know the, the patients Freud was analyzing were only like uh, rich women, right? Uh, and uh, um, there's an there's an Ian Buchanan uh, lecture that I linked above. That's pretty great. It explains uh, it's somewhere in the middle where he talks about uh, D.H. Lawrence. So I think that's a good thing to watch if you guys are curious. Well, it's it, it's really good what he says because it it he's taking you know. Uh, Deleuze and Guattari are taking the same tact as D.H. Lawrence. You know, they're ridiculing the idea. And, uh, and, and he's pointing out the kind of the perversity of it. But it's just interesting how close Deleuze and Guattari's idea is to D.H. Lawrence's idea. And it, it's kind of interesting that, um, you know, the, the, the idea is that, you know, it's reduced to life. And, uh, you know, he's basically saying life is inexplicable. Uh, and, and it turns out that Heidegger, uh, uh, Heidegger was very influenced by Dilthey, and Dilthey had a life philosophy. And so one of the things Heidegger does is differentiate his, his, his philosophy from the life philosophy of Dilthey, Dilthey which is kind of interesting. Uh- here, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, has another question. So I'll read that out loud. Now I understand folding or application, but I'm still wondering how social repression gets delegated or concentrated, I don't remember what the word was, into the family. Like, is it just the daddy, mommy, me structure that does this? So I think one of the key in this chapter is that, um, so one of the fascinating uh, things about the losing is they'll go on to say, Oh, psychoanalysis does so much harm, but then they also talk about how psychoanalysis actually is very useless at the same time. So there's kind of like almost these contradictions. But uh, regardless, it's uh, when when they what what, what there's a drastically different tone in this uh, in this chapter than in comparison to what we were reading a bit earlier, and that, I think that's pretty evident, right? They start to at the start when they begin talking about psychoanalysis before that they have this very uh conception that it's oh it's it's, it's doing all these things right it's taking the body without organs and it's turning it into this paranoia i think but now they actually go on and tell us like oh Ed, uh, freud just sits there and sits in his fancy classical theater and stuff right freud doesn't have to do most of the effort most of the effort's already done from the social field i think there's this really great quote where they say that it's uh so it's the subject we have never dared to say that Oedipus was just some uh, fantasy created by psychoanalysis. Rather, the subjects already come Oedipalized and they demand it. They want it more, right? So 
the first thing that they have is that idea of uh, um, the sorry they have uh, they have the prohibition of incest right one of the key I think I pinned the uh, I pinned what I wrote what I took from Eugene Holland's uh, thing because I think he explained this really well but uh, the thing is that in the prohibition of incest since since we, we we understood from the first few chapters how desire is so you know it's so fluid it's always moving it's it's never actually uh it's it's it, it, you know it's the, the the unconscious is collective but not in the union sense the unconscious is collective in the fact that it's anti-anthropocentric it's at it's work at it's at work making connections everywhere right i'm drinking this glass of water right now and this water has a flow of desire that's pushing into you know when i when i go take a piss in the bathroom that flow of water goes somewhere else and there's always desire ingrained in these things right there's always a certain level of sexuality that exists within these things in between and so i think what what happens with the with the prohibition of incest is the flows get blocked right they get they get moved in certain manners they get uh it's like you know you, you direct a stream right a dam directs a stream right the same thing happens with the prohibition of incest the stream gets flowed in a different manner. And when that, when that stream is flowed, right, your desire is changed, right? Since if, if everything's so connected, right, it's, it's also going to be easy to move everything around by just moving one thing. And uh, um, then what happens is that you get stuck in Oedipal representations. But all, all psychoanalysis does is, because you know how, so one of the key things with the family is that with the family institution, there's there's a there's an essential schism between social production and uh, and desiring production. It's you know they make it at the very first chapter they make it a very key thing that desiring production is very much the same thing as social production, but it's just in differing regimes and it's under capitalism where this different uh, regime gets this this sort of schism between the regimes gets so uh, gets gets becomes so explicit right. And uh, what they go on to say with that is that it's from such a segregation. So I, I, I don't like the word family that much because it's it, it could cause some misinterpretation. But I think it's it's more about the division between social so, social reproduction, right? Reproduction that happens in the family, right? A child is born, for example, and uh, that there's a, there's the, or you, you produce in a factory, right? It's they get divided so well into cycle in, in in a nuclear family that you don't see the flows of desire operating as they should, right? As the schizophrenic, as Judge Schraber out for his walk, right? Judge Schraber he wants to be in the profound bliss of everything. He wants to connect with like the rocks everywhere, right? And you know, I think it's it's you know it's based on our context of the way we live in this world. We probably couldn't actually even understand how what judge Trevor's doing because we've been divided in such a different way right but it's it's from that essential division that the that psychoanalysis is able to edipalize easier and the disjunctions happen in terms of psychoanalysis and that's the paranoiac uh the paranoiac ex- inclu- exclusive disjunction rather than schizophrenic inclusive it helps too we might want to spend a minute talking about um where they so where they talk about psychic and social repression, but also um, what we mean by those two terms, right? That is to say, uh, psychic and social repression are not one and the same, although they are related. So another thing, that, so if uh, like psychic repression, yeah, I think one way to really understand it is, you know, in, your, in that very traditional Freudian sense that it's, it, you know, it happens, it literally happens in the psyche, right? You become, uh, it, it's, it's, 
it's easy to visualize it, right? You push something down in the psyche, and uh, well, what what you do is you. You know, you, 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 I think Freud identifies, right? Then, then you, there's two types, right? There's a neurotic, and I forget the other one. But, uh, you know, it, you, you, you get stuck in certain ruts, right? And that's a sort of thing about your psyche, right? And social repression is, it's, it's similar to, I mean, Jack Farts, you've read Civilization and Discontents, right? Uh, I have some familiarity with it. I mean, but I, I know I, how Freud uses that. I've not read Civilization and Discontents. Because so. I think it's easier if I tell you the Reichian understanding, right? Because I think they're referencing a lot of Wilhelm Reich here. One of Wilhelm Reich's great things is that, sorry, I think so, but... Um, in in the mass psychology of fascism, what what he does is he doesn't he doesn't take this Marxist approach, right? If you're a traditional sort of Marxist, right, yeah. you're coming from that Althusserian tradition, you'd go and say, "Oh, the masses were fooled; they were tricked by ideology." Um, you know, they they were they were deceived; and they were played a fool. But the thing is, what Reich considers is that no, they actually really wanted; uh, they desired their own repression. And it was not some trick or something. They they genuinely wanted it, and that's that's more like social repression for them. I, I think uh, the, the best way to think about it is that even though Deleuze and Guattari are going to reject this notion so hard, their condition, they're in their sort of own unique understanding of a collective unconscious. Um, it's that there's an internal external, right? And in 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 this sort of in this sort of traditional way of looking at psychoanalysis, there's the internal repression that occurs in your mind, and then there's the social repression that happens outside. But uh, that's why they go on to say, if we have this divide, right, between psychic repression and social repression, it's we need desiring machines because that that sort of cuts out this divide to a certain degree. There's no there's no one psyche that's not connected to everything else. With desiring machines, everything is plugged into everything else, and that's what they say Reich's fatal mistake was. Yeah, and to add on to that, um, one one piece of the passage I thought was really um, quite interesting is what, so right they're talking about how there's a paralogism of repression that's called displacement, right? And so they um, at the top of page one sixteen they write Oedipal desires are not at all repressed, nor do they have any reason to be. They are nevertheless in an intimate relationship with psychic repression in a different manner. Oedipal desires are the bait. So what's kind of interesting to me is that, um, especially as we're trying to understand the relationship of psychic and social repression and um, how to kind of make sense of this and where Oedipus fits in. Yeah, I I mean... In, in the previous chapter, right? They, I mean, in, in the previous, I mean, in the previous sections, they were talking. I think they were talking solely about psychic repression and in, in, in how. Uh, okay, so you take what the, what the psychoanalyst does, right? This uh, what what the he says, lie down on the couch, and what he does is he triangulates, right? If uh, if Oedipus records itself on the body without organs, what happens is you get the. Um, what happens when the Oedipus is recorded on the body without organs, you get the exclusive paranoiac disjunction rather than the schizophrenic inclusive disjunctions. And I think, I think this, this entire chapter actually revolves a lot around the body without organs. Cause you know, 
the body without organs has both the locus for repression and the locus for virtual possibilities or virtual potentials where there's both repression and revolution happening at, at the same locale of the body without organs. But um, it, 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 I think that's very close to their notion of psychic repression. I think the hardest part is is because they don't really have much of a divide. But they're saying is the only way we can explain it is is with a divide. So psychic repression would be something like okay, so it's 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 the exclusive uh, disjunction on the body without organs, right? This exclusivity, you're not in the profound bliss of everything. And psych, and now when they talk about this paralogism, right? This paralogism of displacement. Now we're talking about social repression, which is the prohibition of incest. And it's only because of this representation of the prohibition of incest, right? That's the signifying law. I'll try and we get that quote back, but. Uh, it's only because of this prohibition of incest that we 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 are able to be repressed by an edipalized by, or be edipalized by a psychoanalyst. Yeah, I can see. I, I can definitely see that. It interests me that um, the way they talk about the relationship of social and um, psychic repression. It seems to be that social repression is the response of social structures. Um, to desire, so as to prevent, um, in some ways this actually kind of reminds me of Plato, but it's the response to sort of foreclose a desire so that the social structures maintain their um, their presence and, and don't have any threat from the desire. Um, in the same way, it looks like psychic repression is the way social, social repression begins to delegate to an agent how to do this? How to do this displacement of desire, whereby psychic repression can um, sort of do a bait and switch, right? So, like Freud's ego is supposed to tell the id what it wants based on the reality principle. It looks like here what you've got going on is something kind of similar, where the the psychic repression says, "Oh no, no, no! You don't want, um, you don't want this desire, right? And that deprivation." you want this Oedipal desire and that way you can understand yourself in a, a term of um, uh, a psychic repression. What you're getting down to here is social production, right? That I think they're foreshadowing a lot of the themes of chapter three in this one little chapter, in this one little section. Because, okay, so at the primordial level, right, as they laid out this, they laid out this pretty, pretty clearly, in my opinion, in chapter one, at the primordial level, you have desiring production. Right, you have the desiring machines, and they're making connections, and then the dis- the connections are leading to anti-production, makes a disjunction, creates a body without organs. Once the creation of the body without organs is there, there's there's a, there is a sort of uh, there's a, there's a forces of attraction or repulsion, which leads to the celibate machine, and that that's basically how we get construed subjectivity. But what's hap- what happens with desiring productions is when when they go into masses, when desiring machines start to gradually build up, they form masses of social of, of social machines. Desiring machines lead to social machines. They come together to form social machines. And hence, if we have social machines, social production can occur, right? Because social production is a very secondary thing. It's it's first primordially at the very beginning, it's desiring machines. And what happens with social production is it works back on desiring machines, right? So there's a reciprocal determinism where both affect the other and they have a feedback loop playing with each other, right? So, uh, 
repression of desiring machines represses social production, but social production represses desiring machines at the same time. I, I, I think it's 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 caused by a weak mode of social production that desiring machines get repressed. But if desiring machines get further repressed, social production gets further uh, poorer and poorer and worse and worse as well. Yeah, and I think it's worth keeping in mind too that when we're talking about repression here, um, right? So there's one way of thinking about repression in terms of somebody being beaten down and constrained, right? And at some level, that's definitely happening, but that is an effect in conjunction with um, repression as displacement, right? And so I think that's important because, um, in terms of what Bruin's talking about. With displacement, right, that's sort of like a bait and switch. And so there is a there is a level of repression in the sense that it's keeping you from what you're desiring um, uh, as is, right, in a real sense. So it's taking you away from that to displace that desire onto something else, to do a bait and switch, which is a different way of thinking about repression, in my, in my opinion. I think I lost in that last part. Uh, yeah so i'm saying that it's tempting to think of social repression in the sense of you just being um constrained and sort of caged in a sense right this way of you having to keep all this tension inside of you but i think it's important to also look at when they're talking about this level of repression as paralogism they're talking about repression as displacement and so I think it's important to understand that with with that level of caging, the caging succeeds by giving you a bait and switch for your desire. So like when, when Varun's saying, right, like there's this level of trying to get you to want your own repression, what they're also saying is like, it's not just you're getting yourself to want to be caged up, you're also redirecting your desire onto something else so as to make that caging up um, tolerable or acceptable. I think the hardest part of conceptualizing this is coming to terms with the fact that there is no individual anymore. And they're very primordial and they're on, what's given ontologically in terms of the unconscious is that there is no subject. The subject is just this reciprocal thing. It comes from the residual. It comes from that excess that's just left out, right? It's a very Bataille concept, but it comes from that excess that's there. And the subject's just there and it realizes at the very last moment, oh, so that's what it was. But the thing is, if subjectivity is such a weak concept, it's, 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 uh, so yeah, we are, the thing about like, uh, they're going to talk about more of this in, in chapter three, but the thing about a capitalist institution is there, there's a reason why revolutions fail, right? And uh, one of the things is that we are capitalist subjects, right? No matter how much you go and say like, oh, you, you know, I'm on the left or I'm on the right. At the end of the day, you, your subjectivity is created by the masses of social production because desiring production always gets welled up into a certain form of social production and your subjectivity is always created from that your subjectivity is uh is is, is always i i think ian buchanan has a nice example of this right he says that when you go on facebook right you're not consuming facebook or i mean you're not producing stuff on facebook facebook's actually producing you right it's working back on you and that's 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 more like the way repression works is it's, it's creating a subjectivity that constitutes you in a certain manner based on the context that you're living in 
Oh, and uh, Herm's incoming, Kent. Uh, you asked about the connections uh, with uh, Lacan, right? Uh, you know, Zizek's book, uh, Organs Without Bodies. So Dan Smith, who's one of the best, uh, like one of the probably one of the best Deleuze scholars like we have out there, has, uh, has, a, has, has a, a really great essay of his critique of uh, Organs Without Bodies, which is Zizek's response. But he, he basically talks about Deleuze's connections to Lacan and how Deleuze and Guattari took a lot of influence from Lacan and his connections in the logic of sense and how the Lacanianism really comes to play in Ed's Oedipus. So I think you might enjoy that essay. So do you guys feel comfortable with the notion of psychic and um, social repressions? Cool. Well, that's a strange way to ask. Do you feel comfortable with psychic and social repression, right? <laughs> no, we don't feel comfortable with it. Yeah. <laughs> but but I just like to make the point that I made uh, in the uh, main reading, which is that, you know, I mean, they were talking about repression here. But there's something else. There's uh, abuse, which leads to trauma. They're not talking about that. So I think I think that I think that that is a more recent issue that's come up. There's a lot of uh, psychotherapy trying to resolve things like PTSD from warfare and other kinds of uh, trauma. Uh, uh, trauma uh, associated with abuse, and uh, so so the thing is, repression <clears throat> isn't necessarily an active and violent thing. Sometimes it is, but 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 the, there's also violence uh, done to done to various people. Uh, by society and within the family and so forth. Um, and so there's some, something more, that's, that's more active. Yeah, I think you're right about that. Like, uh, if we were going to apply Deleuze and Watery to that, we would want to look at um, how things like PTSD are sort of discussed and thought about, right? If they... If there is a repression going on, we could begin to kind of cr maybe critique that or understand it differently, um, as opposed to trauma, which I'm not sure. I don't know if they're going to go that far um, during this, although I think you could kind of tease out some trauma in the sense that, like, um, in the sense that um, supposing you... you so, like, I, I think it's fair to say, like, at one level, the Oedipal problem isn't that severe. But if you were to take this toward, like, um, just a little bit further and say something like, um, how does this play into something like homosexuality, right? How does that threaten the social order and lead to a, lead to a mobilization of agents to displace that desire, right? 
uh, how does that get socially and um, psychically repressed through this method? Then you could start to tease out how there is kind of that, how there could be a trauma with that level of mobilization. I mean, I, I think what's most interesting is that, uh, so this is my first time reading this, right? So I don't know how far they would eventually go into it. Because I know Red Anthony did this before. But uh, what, 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 because, um, you know, the body without organs, it's, it's such a nuanced concept. And, it, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a really, like, they just shoved in so much crap into it, right? It's, such a, it's a concept where, it does everything and does and does nothing at the same time for them. Um, it's it's it, it has that both locus for repression and that locus for revolution, right? So I I think maybe it's pragmatism, right? But like the whole point of these their entire practice, I think I think if you guys are really interested in this, I think you might like schizoanalytic cartographies because that's what Guattari was trying to map out, right? How do you create a meta model where uh, you consider the transformation of the of the analysis practice while you're doing the analysis practice, how it's, it's all, everything's working back on each other and how everything's affecting the same thing while at the same time you're doing the practice. And, uh, um, that's, but like the, the whole point of this is that it's very Nietzschean in the sense that it's, uh, they're, they're trying to affirm the active force, right? They're trying to, they're trying to be productive, so I, I think that's what's most interesting about this, right? It's 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 that they're they're trying to they're trying to go forward. They're trying to do something. I mean, in terms of like trauma, I think that would definitely have to do with the body without organs, because that has to do directly with memory. One one thing about the body without organs that's helped me is to. Um, uh, you know, I, I did an analysis recently of the, uh, you know, the play of Oedipus, uh, just to just to see what would happen. Uh, I just thought it would be neat if I could find within it these different syntheses. Um, but you know, in order to make in order to 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 make it work, I had to think of it as the uh, the body of the family uh, that the violence was being done. And so if you think about it in terms of other societies where the family, uh, where the individual is not uh, one person, but uh, could be multiple people, like for instance, in Japan with the EA or in China with clans, um, you can think of the violence that's happening across the body of the family. And then that becomes productive for understanding things like uh, abuse, violence within the family. And then it, it's not limiting the body without organ to the body of just a single individual. So, does anyone have questions, um, whether it's about what we were talking about in terms of displacement or other areas of the section? But one thing I'd like to mention is that uh, in the Lacan reading group, we've uh, been reading uh, Seminar 11, and uh, Lacan talks about 
painting as a trap for vision. So he has a very similar idea of uh, of uh, trapping as being something that creates the uh, anamorphic objects. And so I just w- thought I'd mention that be- because that's very similar. And also the the, the three things about the uh, you know the repressing representation, the displaced represented. And the repressed representative, um, that repressed representative is a lot like the anamorphic object. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, one of the key things that they mentioned in, the, in chapter one is that the, you know, each desiring machine interrupts the world from its own flux, right? The eye interrupts the world from its own flow the the mouth like you know if you go wash your hands right what, what do you what do you have you have a flow of water that the, that the desiring machine of your hands is connecting into there's a sexuality there right i mean uh, i think the key thing here is we've to understand that sexuality is everywhere right they have this great passage where they talk about you know the bureaucrat who fundles his papers and gets the sort of joy out of fundling his papers and uh, um the, the board, the, the, they give the example of the, they, they, I think they say pretty explicitly the, the it's, 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 it's all these sort of like ASMRs. I think that's the best way to think about it. Examples of that. But the thing is that I think what Ken's being about trapping, I think that's, that's, that's an interesting word. Cause if, if, if it's, if it's really like flowing like water, right. What these uh, sort of, uh, what these, uh, representations or these displacements or these paralogisms or these representations created by uh, either the social production or the the psychic repression or psychoanalysis what these things do is that these they take these flows and then they block it off right they they make them they make they force them to flow into into in like a dam right they act like a dam to cause the floats to go in a certain way well, like if you're washing your hands and you take your hands and you cup them so that the water flows into the cup of your hand and then overflows it. Yeah, yeah. And then that's also like, I don't know, maybe we have a metaphor for the potential of revolution with the overflow, but I don't know how far. Um, so Begum has a question. All these elements were present in Freud. Uh, a fantastic, a f- fantastic uh, uh uh, Christopher Columbus, a brilliant bourgeois reader of Goethe, Shakespeare and Sophocles, a mask Al Capone. So you want to know about the references? Uh, I think I'll have to, I think I need the line previous before that, though. I'll try to get out my copy. Well, okay, so Christopher Columbus refers to someone who discovers a new, a new, uh, a new world, like, uh, you know, Freud, Freud thought that he had discovered a new world of the unconscious, but actually Schopenhauer had discovered that before him. And then, uh, but he, but, but Freud uh, referred to uh, Goethe and Freud, uh, Shakespeare and Sophocles in his work. Three ways existed. So those three, those three famous examples are supposed to illustrate the three elements that coexisted in um, psychoanalysis, and as Freud discovered it, right? So it's supposed to illustrate Ernest Jones' um, critique, which is the the revolutionary element whereby desiring production was discovered, which Kent just described, right? Christopher Columbus 
is fantastic. He goes about um, discovering a new world. And he's referenced elsewhere as an example of someone who can, he's he's used as an example of desiring production in different syntheses. Um, The second element is the element of um, classical culture which is a way to reduce everything to a scene from the Oedipal theatric representation. So like what they're saying is um, the way Freud reads Goethe and Shakespeare and Sophocles is to illustrate the theory of psychoanalysis he has and from the perspective of a bourgeois um, commitment, right? So it shows a, a commitment to a class or a limited perspective. So like uh, Goethe has Faust, which is like, um, oh gosh, to get it down to a really quick thing, Goethe's Faust is about a scholar who makes a deal with um, the devil to see if he can be tempted. And um, it's effectively kind of like that, right? Is it's like, can you or can you not get me to, um, I think it's to curse God. Yeah, it's Mephistopheles. Uh Right, I think Shakespeare we all know, and Sophocles is the origin of Oedipus, or at least the um, the most famous play. And then the third element is the um, the racket thirsting after respectability. So it's the way that like a masked Al Capone builds up a criminal empire, but under the guise of a um, a non criminal empire. Right, in the same way psychoanalysis um, can be critiqued as building up this sort of house of cards um, or rather I shouldn't say it that way it's more of like a um, a boilerplate organization where what you see isn't what you get yeah, I, I mean I, I think I might have a different interpretation but I think in lines like these the beautiful part is that we all get our different interpretations right there are a lot of, there are a lot of sort of they, they, they like to take I mean there's real juvenile energy to this book right they like to take their short jabs I think one of the best ones was with Melanie Klein with Daddy Train and Dick Train but uh, the thing about Freud is that I, I think this passage is they're trying to show that okay because the social repression already exists prior to psychoanalysis right so it's a poor mode of social production that allows psychoanalysis to do things freud is kind of useless they see freud as basically just a joke in this case right so they're, they're making fun of that oh he just he just he just saw a bunch of movies and he decided oh, I, I don't want to say movies but uh, he just saw a bunch of plays and he decided and not even the avant-garde ones right they say that in uh, in, uh, in the previous chapter, he was not looking at anything cutting edge. He was not looking at anything new, anything unique, anything insightful. He was just going to the old things, right? And he was he was trying to find the classical representation, the classical models. And that, that's what they mean by not an avant-garde one. But what, what he does is, uh, um, and this is like the big R word again, right? He, he All he does is he sees these and he's like, oh, we can just make a representation now. And all we do is more representation. But the thing is, it's, it, you know, they say psychoanalysis is not innovative, right? There's nothing innovative about psychoanalysis. The thing is, it's always, it, it was, it was, it, 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 psychoanalysis, the conditions for psychoanalysis were simply already put in place. The historical conditions were already there for Freud to discover Oedipus. And it was from the prohibition of incest that suddenly, you know, Freud's just, Freud's just here and he's just doing that. 
he's just playing with these plays, right? He's just sitting in the he's just sitting in the in the theater and he's just like, oh, let's just look at this film and stuff. Yes, but I think you want to be careful because um, so much of this book references Beckett's Malloy that it leads us to ask the question, right? What is different about how Deleuze and Guattari are engaging with plays and literature as opposed to how Freudian ideology, as they call it on page 117, uh, how is that different from how Freudian ideology engages plays? Um, so there's another line that they say they've never claimed to made a, sch- made a schizophrenic, right? But uh, for them, like the schiz- I mean, I think they make this locker in like a thousand plateaus, but Marcel Duchamp, right? The guy who who created that, made that insane discovery of, oh, he changed art by creating, what if we think of art as conceptual art? And he did that. I, they think of William Burroughs. William Burroughs does the cut-up technique. Uh, he changes the way writing, the way, the way uh, you know, our understanding of the desiring machine of the book is is is, uh, is in place. Uh, so, like, honestly, for them, like, the schizophrenic is the creative, right? Is the one who's breaking out of the established zones, uh, where psychoanalysis goes to the zones right it goes back to the past it goes to oedipus it goes to the classics it goes to what has already been known it goes to familiar territories uh the 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 the, schiz- the, the schizophrenic or the non-paranoiac right is looking for new ways he's the, the, it's creativity essentially right the new potentials of the body without organs um that's how they use literature or that's how they use the artists here i think another really beautiful part of this book is that it's some of the writing, right? You you don't know who you're who you're uh, who you're reading when you're reading it. I mean, is it the losers at Guattari? We never know. Or, but even better, is it the madman who's speaking? Is it the doctor who's speaking? Is it the bureaucrat who's speaking? Is it the bourgeoisie, or is it the priest, or is it the is it the psychoanalyst, or is it the patient? We never know. And uh, the frankly, that goes back to the critique of uh, identity, right? It's just. Uh, it's just what these people are doing. But uh, the thing is, what, what's happening there is that the the way the way it flows with this case of, of the madman being the one who produces, it's that idea that the artist for them is the figure of the of the revolutionary sort of thing. Yeah, but I do think you want to be careful because I don't think the problem is them going back to... I don't think they mean to say that Freud going back to Shakespeare and Sophocles and Goethe is a problem. I think what they're saying is the way that he starts with a way... So, like, to me, it it sounds like the Freudian ideology begins with its conclusions and just applies that to the uh, the reading of these plays. Right. Right. I I think... uh, Like, even Shakespeare, if you're looking for the schizo, right, like, you could go to King Lear and see some very different things going on than what Freud found, particularly in not only the fool, but um, um, I think it's the oh gosh, it starts with the G. Gloucester, I think, him and his son. Plays of Sophocles, schizophrenic. I'm, I might have phrased it really badly then, because I, I mean, even it's, I don't think it's about it, it's not some sort of conservatism, right? Conservatism. It's not that. It's not that. Oh, it's it's the old stuff that's bad. I think it's definitely not that. It's that the losing lottery would never be so, uh, you know, they wouldn't be so closed off. It's it's the what the thing is. It's 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 that you're looking at representation rather than production in the purest sense, right? It's uh, 
what what Freud is doing was he's you know even even something like William Burroughs, even something like Marcel Duchamp can become Oedipalized, right? Even that could become Freudian, and that could become classical too. But um, I, I guess the case is that it's uh, it's it's this thing about representation. That's the key word in all of this, right? The way Freud just Freud doesn't understand that these things are productive; they're being produced, right? He just sees them as these sort of metaphysical things, these transcendent things that express themselves, that mean something, that play hermeneutics with the, with the psyche. And that's the mistake that they're playing. So I think you're right in critiquing me there. Thank you. And yeah, I do agree with you that it, it's the right, it's the critique of the Freudian ideology. So like, right, a brilliant bourgeois reader, you know, it, it's the way that all this stuff fits together to color the reading. Yeah, I think later on they say that Freud just enhances the movement of capitalism, right? He's the, he's he's uh, actually you know what they say he's pretty useless, right? He he just keeps it going. He keeps the you know even like the, there's no possibility of revolution for, from from Lacanianism, right? All the, and and Freud is just continuing the same movement that occurs from the that that paralogism of this the fourth paralogism of displacement, the barring of incest. Yeah. To make a final point on this section, that's why I think it is interesting that Freudian ideology does seem to come with them. So, right, like there are these two elements that are very, like, um, you know, there's a clear value judgment going on. But it's interesting, they also recognize the third element, the exploratory, pioneering, revolutionary element, whereby desiring production was discovered. So, really, it's interesting that. Even among those three elements, there's an element of Freudian ideology where they were able to discover something revolutionary, right? In the same way, like, uh, we want Christopher Columbus to get out of the way of our history. Uh, maybe that's kind of what they're getting at, too, with getting, um, you know, Freud's baggage out of the way. Yeah. Kieran has another question. So, so the significance of bearing incest is in the fourth problem of displacement. So that we accept the prohibition of incest and then project it or that or apply it onto our social relations. Is that how we desire repression? When our dro- job traps our flows, desire we are the boss. We interject that repression. So it's the same way as the kind of family that even desires. I, I mean, here's another thing. Uh, so far, at least, because I've, I've not read that. I'm still on. I'm still on the uh, chap, chapter uh, two, right? So far, at least, everything about desire is unconscious. The case of desire, it, it works. I mean, I'm, the way I'm understanding it, at least, it works similar to Nietzsche's impulses. I think a big influence for this book was Klausowski's reading of Nietzsche in the Nietzsche in, which, in the vicious circle, right? That that there's the drives, and even Freud was influenced by Nietzsche's theory of the drives, right? That one drive guides the uh, one, the drive with the greatest will to power wills all the other drives to come into to follow them, right? And every and everything that else that's not part of that drive just gets relegated to an it. And you know what? Where the Enlightenment tradition valued the intellect, Nietzsche came back to this this almost barbarian body aspect to us. I think we went back to the body, to the somatic level. And um, it's not so much that we have control in our desire. That's a key thing here. There's really no control in the in their desire. I, I think one way to think about this is the great example from another great example from Eugene Holland, right? So. Uh, 
you're a lawyer in, in a court and the way the lawyer wills evidence is he's not, he doesn't create the evidence spontaneously. Rather, he, al- he creates it by allowing it to flow, right? The evidence is there. He takes it from one locale and he brings it into the courtroom. He allows the evidence to flow into a certain, into a certain manner. But it's not something like you actively will. It's not like, oh, I want to be a painter. So I do, I practice painting for hours and hours and hours until I can finally get that I have the desire to be a painter. I practice painting and I become a painter. No, it doesn't work like that. It's, it's, it's that subjectivity is from these unconscious flows. And the thing is that these flows, when they get trapped, I mean, your entire subjectivity is trained. So it's not just the will. I don't like that word a lot in this case, because it, 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 it creates a lot of confusion, but it's the fact that your subjectivity literally changes. And that's the key thing that they influence with the, with the fact of the disjun- the disjunctive, uh, exclusive rather than the disjunctive inclusive of uh, schizophrenia right when this disjunctive the disjunctive uh, exclusive happens what happens is that um all these regulations fundamentally change our subjectivity so it's it's not so much that it's 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 happening at any uh, conscious level it's just uh, it, 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 it it's just literally affecting us in a certain way yeah I'm I'm not sure. There's definitely a question of how much agency we have when it comes to desire and that, right? So I'm not going to try and take that on. I'll simply say that um, they're very clear that we act as handymen plugging in machines, right? So what we can say, I think, clearly is that we plug ourselves and we plug the things that do desiring, the things that desire flows through into one another, which is why I think it's, you know, when we talk about deprivation in terms of the first synthesis, I think that's really critical there. But in the same way, when it comes to um, repression and uh, not refreshment, repression and the, the, um, the displacement of desire, I think that kind of cements it there where it's right. If, if psychic repression works so that you desire social repression, then the way that is, is like psychic repression will give you the Oedipal model so that you'll plug your, that that will come into play, right? And you'll start to plug into that. And therefore you're willing to accept the um, the social repression you're plugged into. So it's a way of cutting off the flows. And because, um, because we've seen how the schizophrenic can actually like right on the body without organs, right? that whole idea of us being able to participate in the recording process of our desire or to um, to be more active in what we're plugging ourselves into is cut off, just like with the boss, right? Uh, Tieran, you give the example of the boss. When we can't, when the boss relegates our desires, right, and cuts off um, certain flows and there's a deprivation, what can happen with the fourth paralogism is you'll displace that um, that desire you had and you'll move it to something representative. Maybe I'm not listening to you that well, but I don't think it's about moving into representative. It's the representation that uh, traps the flows. This idea of uh, being comf- comfortable with our repression, I'm not so confident that they've given us that they've actually given us enough uh, enough um, 
you know, or maybe I've read it poorly, but it, I don't think they've actually told us that much about this because it's it's uh, what you're asking about is at least my understanding is that you're saying that um, it's 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 when we're conscious that we accept it, right? But I think so far as we've, as we've described it there's really nothing to accept or not accept. It's just happening almost automatically. And the subject has zero autonomy almost. I don't think it's we that apply the representation. It's the representation that does something to us because the representation has that special power to move our flows and, or make it go, make it flow in certain directions. (laughs) Russia representation realizes here. Yeah. I mean, I'm sorry, but I'm a bit confused about your question now, Tiran, because I'm not, I'm not sure where the Oedipus subject is in the sentence. Like, I'm sorry, but can you rewrite it, please? Hello, can you guys hear me? Yeah, did you guys hear what I said? They probably did. My my Wi-Fi crashed. Um, I cut out right where... Well, I don't know where I cut out. What was the last thing I said? Oh, I was asking Tyrion if he could rewrite his question. So I'm sort of struggling to understand it now. I'm confused myself. I'm just trying to figure out what the fuck, <laughs> what the hell's going on. Is if I read body without organs, is that like? Would that be fine to read as an introductory? Um, yeah, are we talking about the same book here? No. So, so, I mean, I mean, we're on chapter two point seven of Anti Oedipus. So, I, I think the first chapter personally is the hardest because it's going to introduce so much. It, it gets you to it's it's forcing you to think in this in a way you've never thought before, almost. But as soon as you get that, I think it gets easier towards the other the end. I I missed it. Were you, were you able to finish answering that Tiran's question? I, I was I was I was trying to, but um, I, I'm I'm a bit confused where the Oedipus subject fits into that sentence. Actually, is it up to we or one, one more time? I'm a bit confused. Oh, okay, okay. So, okay, I'm gonna read out then again. The Oedipus subject, the representation. So, the Oedipus subject applies the representation to the boss and thus becomes comfortable with that kind of represent repression. So, I just want to confirm that's correct, right? I'm gonna go with that. All right. So, it's if it's if it's the um, the Oedipus subject. So, um, so I think well, the thing about Oedipal subjectivity, uh, the, the simplest way to understand Oedipal subjectivity is, uh, and I, I, I think a good thing maybe we should after after I say this we should go back to that recapitulation of the three, three syntheses because I think that chapter explains it really well. But um, the case about the Oedipal subject is the subject that's 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 forced into this uh exclu- into, the, into this uh, exclusive uh, disjunction rather than an inclusive disjunction right so what happens is they're essentially very they're they're 
Justin Guattari referred to as a paranoia in the state of that paranoia machine kind of state, right? Where the body without organs has recorded the Oedipus triangulation. And rather than the, because the body without organs has, has, since it's a network of signs, right? Lacan has the signifying chain, but uh, on, on the body without organs, the signifying chain doesn't just have to be restricted to language. It could be almost anything that's signified. And they're all empty signifiers that are not just signifying. But what they do is they record previous connections and they form a network. I think a better word than chain is actually network. Right, they form that network of connections, and what what happens in the network is that you have potentials. Now, when the Oedipus triangulation is recorded on the body, those potentials just get disconnected, and you're forced into this exclusive thing where your flows of desire can only identify with uh, um, far less than the schizophrenic can. Right, you're. I think the best word is trapped. You're trapped in a certain manner. And uh, that's what happens with the edipalization. That's what happens to subjectivity. It's a, it's, a very, it's a very trapped subjectivity. What they're arguing in this chapter is that subjectivity doesn't just come from edipalization, but edipalization itself is just derived from the greater movement of the prohibition of incest. But so coming back to edipalization, so the edipalized subject uh, is comfortable with that kind of repression. Right, repression to Bosnus. Now, I, 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 I don't know um, how you're phrasing this, but the boss, but I, I, I don't know about comfortable being comfortable. So, because I don't think they've talked about that yet too much. Too much, right? Could I give that a shot? I'm gonna. I, I'm, I think I, I know what they're getting at. And his mic, I think, was crashing on us. But, Tiern, in regards to the boss, it's a double operation. So, like they said earlier, you have to, I think it's something like you have to apply the boss to the father um, in a similar way here. Yeah, and the desiring your own repression is, it, it's a tough nut to crack. But if you, so like they, they say this is a double operation and so what i think they're trying to say is when desire begins trying to move beyond the uh, the social structures or social aspects right what, what we could call a norma de lot the norma de logical or the normal to use a less uh, a less frightening word when it starts going beyond the normal right there's a way that social repression will clap back and try to prevent desire from moving beyond those structures. And one of the ways it will clap back is it will look to psychic repression so as to um, displace that desire. So in terms of the boss, if your desire is going beyond that of the boss in a project or whatever, if it's challenging that hierarchy or that social structure, to use a, perhaps a less charged word, if it's challenging that structure, then um, I think what will happen... Okay, we can talk about that. Uh, I think what will happen before I get uh, before I get my critique is that um, in the double operation, you will displace the desire 
so as to go that that is sort of uh, at odds with the social structure onto the Oedipal representation to allow for a psychic repression at sort of like the personal level. And that will allow you to desire your own social repression because um, once you're desiring the Oedipal, uh, once you're desiring the Oedipal repression or just the psychic repression, then you're going to want to desire, then it's, it's going to take your mind off of the social things we're trying to get beyond and it's going to want you're going to want to keep them intact so you can begin to be to go through the Oedipal process and try to find a way out. Um, I don't know what what you guys are talking about with want because there is no want, right? There is no subject that goes desire exists before the subject. They make this very clear. There is no will and there is no want. I, I, I like that example of the courtroom, right? The, 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 it's 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 not that you you want something right it's it, as soon as you bring this idea of one you're making Lacanian error I'm sorry uh, I think you have a lot of all right thanks but uh so uh the thing about want is that if you start talking about want you get back into that Lacanian trap of thinking about desire as a lack right that's a big problem your desire is not a lack and the thing is their definition of desire is so different than what what we've conceived of desire previously their def- definition of desire is a flow right there and it, and there's no at the stage we're talking about right now there's still no subjectivity it's a pre-individual stage um so there's no will there's no there's no consciousness to will something so there's no there's no it's it's not like you know I, I physically want my, I, I will. So I, I want to make a distinction between two phrases, right? Desire and will. Will is that ability to, um, so I want to be a painter. So I practice really hard to be a painter and I will the pain, I will that identity of the painter within myself. Desire, on the other hand, desire has, is, is, a, is automatic. There's no, there's no subject controlling desire. Desire is controlled by a larger fo- social field, and the, and the social field itself is created by desire because desire is very primordial. It's an ontological primordial thing for the losing lottery. And uh, desiring, I think, desiring your own repression precisely means that your own you conduct your conductor, right? Your flows of desire get conducted into a specific formation, and from that formation, you desire your own repression because you've moved those flows in a certain manner. So there's no conscious will coming in and saying uh and willing your own repression it's rather that there's a flow that's been trapped and that's what they mean by desiring your own repression but i think this idea of consciousness now i've not read ahead i've not read chapter three and chapter four but that's what they're eventually going to start getting to in chapter three so i think what you just need to sit tight now you'll you'll have your question answered (laughs) yeah i take your point but um we can talk about lack, right? We just can't talk about lack in terms of an absolute um, absence. We can talk about lack in terms of deprivation. But yeah, you're right. We, I should be more careful of d- differentiating between the unconscious and the conscience, right? Because it sounds like that's yeah, sound- be my explanation is I'm... I'm trying to push things into the conscious as opposed to leaving the unconscious, correct? Dare I say it, you're being Lacanian. <laughs> uh, perhaps. I'm trying to keep it simple for explanation's sake, but fair enough, right? If you go to my example, and if you want, you can replace the me saying the word want with 
you plugging in a machine. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, I'm going to say this courtroom example again, because I, I was actually making the same misunderstanding before I started thinking about it like this, right? It's not that the lawyer wills in the evidence. What the lawyer does is he takes the evidence from another place and he produces it in the courtroom. He's just moving. You know, desiring machines, we're moving things. We're not uh, taking a will because a will implies that there's a conscious subject. There's no conscious subject yet, but there are these flows and they're impersonal. And that's what makes them so malleable, right, to, to, to representations. That's why representations are so impactful on them, that they can move the flow and push them into a certain direction. I, I don't know if that helps, though, Tian. I hope we cut to your question. Shall we move on to, uh, did, did you, anyone want to talk about D.H. Lawrence more? I really enjoyed reading that this morning. I thought that was great. Sure. Um, I've actually got to go start dinner, though. But um, D.H. Lawrence is always interesting. Well, I just didn't realize that he did a a critique of Freudianism early. early. He really had, I think he had a big disdain for the entire Psychoanalysis Institute. I think he expressed it a lot in some of his personal essays. I mean, you know, some may say that he was the first anti-psychiatrist coming from the tradition of R.D. Lang and stuff, but um, I'm against stretching. Well, I, I, uh, what I liked about it was that it was kind of in the same spirit as uh, what we're getting here, kind of uh, ridiculing some of the ideas. Oh, yeah, I, I, they take a lot of influence from all these people. So, I mean, is there anything else you wanted to say about D.H. Lawrence specifically? Well, no, I, I posted in the, uh, in the chat the things that I thought were uh, interesting, the, the quotes that I found, but they're mostly in Chapter 2. You can get time you know, for you know, basically, basically, he's saying that the unconscious is the unconscious is life, and the ind- and the individual living uh, being. You know, and I, I just thought, uh, you know, and then he goes into the mother and child relationship, and I thought that was very realistic. What he was saying about that. So anyway, I, I would just recommend people uh, read that. And evidently, he's got two books on it. Uh, there's a there's a second one as well, where he takes up the subject again. Yeah, I, I think Blues is another great essay. It's called "On the Superiority of Anglo-American Literature." And he talks further about the connections between all the literature they were mentioning on in, in uh, even at uh, a thousand plateaus. Oh, I didn't. I hadn't heard of that. Are there any other questions? Uh, questions concerns heckles. <laughs> Uh, well, I guess the other topic 
uh, is Reich. Wilhelm Reich. Nice, yeah, like yeah. Awesome. yeah, okay. Anyone, anyone want to discuss? Uh... I think the key thing about Wilhelm Reich is that what Lewis and Guattari see there is that he, he, he first he considers that as him understanding rather than considering it ideological. He considers it that the masses desire their own repression. But they see they say Wilhelm Reich failed, right? He was not able to go far enough was because he needed uh, desiring machines. He needed he needed that category of desiring machines to allow him to understand how uh, desiring machines can be repressed. Right. And it's because he didn't consider the 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 the, the segregation between social production and reproduction in two isolated fields, what as desiring machines would do. Right. He did. did he, he created a schism between the two. And um, the thing is that the, I'm going to use this metaphor again. Right. It's it's the flow. It's like water being controlled by a dam. Right. That's how repression works. Well, Wilhelm Reich stick, so it was all well, fell back on repression again. I mean, representation again, and because he it's because he didn't have that productive unconscious, he couldn't go fully with his critique. But they take a lot of influence from Wilhelm Reich in that case. Well, one of the things I noticed uh, in, in Thousand Plateaus when I read the section on the body without organs is that they use Chinese. Uh, alchemy as an example of the body without organ, they don't really go into it. Uh, but but that was more or less what Reich was doing, was uh, this whole idea that there was sexual energy and you could uh, store it up. That's basically the idea of, uh, of Taoist alchemy. I mean, I mean, that's also uh, Reich's idea of the orgone, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I I think the key thing is that there's a. They also have this idea that there's sexuality everywhere, right? It's it's that pleasure, you know. I I think we all experience this, right? Like, you know, you get a new phone, and the phone you peel it off, and there's something satisfying about peeling the phone off, the phone cover off like that, right? That that's another example of the flows being moved in a certain way. Sort of, there's something satisfying about it, and that's I think that's that's a really great example of their idea of this subtle sexuality that there's at play everywhere. Uh, well, okay, so so uh, if you take into account difference in repetition, and logic of sense, then it's uh, better to talk about sense, right, than sexuality. I mean, it's uh, uh, because because that that's what's everywhere, and 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 the the neat thing about the uh, the the word sense that it means both meaning and sensory uh, feeling, and it also means affect, and so it's a it's a word that that where you know the 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 parts have not been broken apart. And there's no dualism there, so that that word gets used quite a bit in continental philosophy, but especially Deleuze and Deleuze in logic. Of- yeah, I, I mean, even the even the unconscious, right? It's not it's not a collective unconscious, conscious as as uh, Jung would put it, right? It's it's a collective unconscious in the sense that 
everything is being connected on this imminent level, that everything is connected to everything else. And this is where the anti-anthropocentrism comes in, right? Because a desiring machine doesn't distinguish between human and non-human. A table is still a desiring machine, right? Uh, the walls are desiring machines. And the, the partial objects are still desiring machines. And, you know, that's what they identify as the mistake Melanie Klein made later earlier on in Chapter 1. Uh, I think Hera is asking you a question, Kent, about the, the, the point of Taoist alchemy with regards to the body without organs. Uh, in discussion chat. Well, uh, is it in discussion? Oh, oh, what's the point on Taoist alchemy again? Okay, the point is that uh, in the uh, body without organs chapter of uh, Thousand Plateaus, uh, they use Taoist alchemy as an example of a body without organ. And what the Taoists were up to was storing up sexual energy. Um, and, uh, and that's the basic idea of organ energy of, of Reich. Yeah, I'm, I mean, they also give the example of, uh, of the masochist, right, taken from uh, Lars von Salch's Venus in Furs that uh, the masochist disjuncts his body in a certain way to experience pleasure so radically different than, you know, the normal individual, the normative individual. And, uh, and they also give the example of William Burroughs experimenting with drug, drugs and stuff. But uh, the thing about the, the, that chapter, I think what, what the key line there is in that chapter, especially is where psychoanalysis says, uh, stop, stop, we need to stop here. Uh, schizoanalysis says, no, we haven't found our body without organs yet. And that's essentially them talking about schizoanalysis, like sort of, I don't want to say pragmatism, because the problem, I don't know, I'm not super well read in pragmatism, but I think it's a very different project, personally. It's, it's the problem is, the thing about schizoanalysis, it's trying to create something productive, right? It's being affirmative as Nietzsche's active force, uh, it's avoiding resentment, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's being that thing that produces something. I think it's a very cliche example of art, but I think that's a way to understand it. Because the body would, they, they, I mean, the, the correct synthesis, right? As opposed to paralogistic synthesis, the syllogistic synthesis of the body without organs understands uh, creation, right? It, 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 it stores potentials rather than triangulations. I mean, I had a question personally. I, 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 no one's asking any questions right now. So I'll ask a question uh to you, Kent, I mean, uh, I, I'm not really well read in Merleau-Ponty by any definition. So I, I would, I was reading that thing that you posted about wild being. So I would appreciate if you could sort of elucidate some of that for me. So, um, uh, so anyway, there's these meta levels of being, and the first two are in being and time. They're called present at hand and ready to hand. They're modalities by which Dasein deals with things in the world. And so that's the basis of fundamental ontology, is to differentiate those modalities you know, with respect to things rather than Dasein. The whole idea is that Dasein uh, has these different modalities for dealing with things. And, uh, and, uh, and so uh, Heidegger... Uh, says they're equiprimordial. So, so then what happened in the history uh, with, of uh, fundamental ontology with its reception in France is that people 
as they worked with uh, Heidegger's ideas, they started dis- independently discovering that there was another kind of being beyond just present at hand and ready to hand. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, that's uh, Heidegger discovers it as uh, being crossed out. Uh, Lacan starts u- crossing out things in his seminar after he reads uh, uh, Heidegger's uh, article where he starts crossing things out. Uh, then Derrida uh, decides to uh, take what uh, Heidegger and Lacan has done and make it more uh, philosophical, and he comes up with this idea of difference. And uh, and then I've read commentaries lately that say that Sartre's idea of nothingness is very similar to that. So anyway, there, 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 there was a major kind of movement in fundamental ontology to go up to a next emergent level where there was another kind of being. And uh, Merleau-Ponte was another discoverer of this. And uh, in the phenom- at, the, at the end of the phenomenology of perception, he um, finds uh, what's called hyperbeing, this third meta level of being, in the expansion of being in the world. So, like a blind man with his stick, an organist with their organ, if they become a master musician, they incorporate that instrument into their body. Uh, I mean, in their in the, their being in the world, and uh, uh, so it becomes part of their body as if it was part of their body. And so, uh, so be, uh, hyper-being is this expansion of, of, of being in the world into new possibilities. And a good way of thinking about it is that it's when you use some tool for a completely different purpose, and then you need to create a new tool to fulfill that purpose. So a new tool comes into the world that's that's an example of uh, of hyper being, and uh, so anyway, uh, in uh, the visible and the invisible, Merleau-Ponty um, uh, says there must be an opposite to uh, hyper being, uh, and he calls it wild being. Then he 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 has this chapter where he. Uh, tries to define what it is and says that it has to do with uh, uh, chiasmic relationships and like, for instance, touch touching. And he says that if you touch yourself with your your hand with your hand, you can't touch from both sides at the same time. There's some kind of hiatus or some kind of something uh, opaque between the two touching. And he calls that wild being. So basically, Deleuze has picked up on that and and decided to complete uh, Merleau-Ponty's project of trying to understand wild being. So almost all of Deleuze's work is at the wild being level. But then, how would you say that fit in, fits into like transcendental empiricism? Transcendental empiricism is the exploration of wild being. That's that's. That's Deleuze's name for it. 
Uh, maybe I'm I'm not super. I'm, I've actually never read Merlo Ponzi, so I, I can't I can't disagree or anything. I mean, I just like to mention actually, you were cited in, in a book that I was reading. So I don't uh, know that doesn't happen very often. <laughs> you know uh, what? What they call those artists that are uh, they don't go to art school. There's a special name for artists that are not accepted as artists, but they do art. I always thought those were called artists. <laughs> well, maybe. <laughs> anyway, there's a there's a name for them. You know, like American primitive artists. They have they, uh, you know, they're artists that never went to art school, and therefore they they paint things that are. Uh, that's kind of what I. So they, you know, they don't get referenced uh, through by academic. But every once in a while, someone makes a mistake, and they actually re reference me. I don't know why. Anyway. Uh, do you, Varun, do you understand the idea of wild being? I'm, I'm sort of trying to conceptualize it. I mean, I think it's easier because I'm more familiar with transcendental empiricism, right? I'm trying to understand it in that sense, right? So you're, you're coming from, so you're saying, okay, so at least I'm trying to recapitulate what you were stating, right? So Heidegger has two forms, right? He has uh, he has Zuhandenheit and Vorhandenheit. And uh, later, once we get into, um, what you call it? Uh, Heidegger's being crossed out. I, I know Derrida definitely had some stuff in, like it, at least in off grammatology, right? He has, he has, he goes on long passages about being crossed out, and uh, and I, I know Lacan started experimenting with that, right? But I, I, I'm really struggling on the Merleau-Ponty part. Yeah, so so Merleau-Ponty came up with this idea that uh, if you've got an expansion of being in the world, well, there must be a contraction. What happens in the contraction? That was his reasoning. And so, um, and then the reasoning for hyperbeing is that if you've got two kinds of being that are equiprimordial, ready to hand and president hand, then what's the difference between them? It must be equiprimordial too. So that, that, that difference between them is like Paul Simon's uh, slip sliding away. You know, in his song, uh, it's a, it's like a, it's like a traces on the beach where the waves continually come in and wash them away. You know, try distinguishing between president hand and ready to hand. But when it gets right down to it, you can't you can't pin it down. Have you read Luce's book on the fold by any chance? Sure. Right. I, I mean, I, I'm struggling through that because the translation is such garbage. But I wonder. I mean, I mean, considering with that, you know, like everything is folded in, into itself, sort of. I mean, is is there a is there a comparison there? Uh, so there is. Uh, um, okay, so that would be a very long discussion about what what's happening in that book. Uh, and where where he's talking about wild being in that book, I mean, uh, 
I can't point to a specific thing immediately to say where wild being. You know, I'd have to go back and look at my. Yeah, when I read these, when I read these things, I look for when they're talking about these different kinds of being, and uh, I usually note it if I find them. I think at least with the Heidegger talks, I think we should try and figure out how we can in- implement them in our own discussions on the other server, at least. So it's very interesting stuff that I've not seen prop up anyway, anywhere else that you're bringing up. So, Yeah, basically where this comes from is that, uh, you know, I, w- I was in England and analytic philosophy was a big deal. And I was reading a lot of Russell and learned about higher logical type theory. And then I decided to read continental philosophy. And then eventually it became clear to me that they were talking about these different, these different meta levels that the, they weren't, it wasn't just a, uh, what do you call it? Uh, uh, a variety of different things that they were talking about that had no order to them, that, that actually they, ha- they had this structure of meta levels, just like the higher logical types. And the reason for that is being is the most paradoxical thing there is. And higher logical types is the way of trying to sort out and get rid of paradoxes, but it doesn't work. That's what Godel's proof shows, that, that, that even if you set up those firewalls of the higher logical types, you cannot uh, keep the contamination out of any particular chamber. So. Uh, but anyway, once you realize that 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 they're walking up, you know, I don't think they realize this, but I, once you realize they're walking up the hierarchy of uh, higher logical types with their concepts of being, uh, then you can start looking for it. And when when are they when are they talking about the same thing? When are they talking about something different? And what's nice about it is each one is radically different from the other. So. It's not like they blend together anyway. They're, they're, there's like discontinuities between them. But, but the nice thing is that Derrida is almost always talking about hyperbeing, which is difference. Uh, Deleuze is almost always talking about wild being, except in this book, I, I'm discovering coming back to it, there's a lot of uh, Derrida's ideas uh incorporated and i think that's that's what makes this book an amazing thing is because it's a synthesis of uh i think it's the only one that i know of and i didn't realize it until i started rereading it that is it's like a synthesis of wild being and hyper being you know i mean i find that comparison with derrida interesting because you know i'm not super well read derrida but uh, you know, one of the big people who was a big influence was Derrida was uh, Levinas, right? I mean, and the thing sure. for Levinas, I've gained this from Dan Smith. He said this in an essay once that, you know, Le- while Deleuze focused so much on the imminent, right? The imminent conditions for uh, for the unconscious, the imminent conditions for experience, the imminent conditions of desire, Levinas was, was going for transcendence, right? And that's what Derrida took up. So I don't know. Is it still redeemable to say that they're both very connected? Well, okay. So my interpretation, uh, uh, I, I haven't read Totality and Infinity, but uh, he wrote another book called Beyond Being. And I think in that he's coming up with his own definition of um, hyperbeing. 
and he sees it as the mutual. It's very relevant to what we're talking about here. We're not really off the subject because uh, he see it as he sees it as the mutual bearing between mother and child, where the the mother bears the child and the child has to bear the menstruations of the mother. And he Levinas in that book says that uh, metaphysics and ontology collapse together at that level. Sorry, say it again. Uh, metaphysics and uh, ethics collapse together at that level of mutual bearing. And so he has a very different idea of the other and the relationship to the other than either Sartre or Lacan. Lacan's ideas are mostly taken Sartre. Yeah, I think this is definitely a longer discussion than now, and I think it's a little bit more to have to read more Merleau-Ponty to really wrap my head around this. Um, I think it'll be interesting to, to see how, how we can incorporate this into the Heidegger discussions too, but I think we've already gone very, very off topic from Anti-Oedipus now, so, I mean, are there well, any... I think the, I think the I think the mutual bearing uh, is relevant to the, the mother-child relationship and what we've been you know, because D.H. Uh, Lawrence, in his book, you know, he has he's, he basically got two chapters dedicated to the mother-child relation and his view of it. And his view of it is much more realistic. Freud's relationship, which is basically perverse. I think that's what, that, I think that it, what comes across in... Uh, T.H. Lawrence is that he really does not like the perversity of, of, of Freud's ideas. The idea is that you're going to take adult sexuality and project it back on children. You know, there's something perverse about it. I think we can think about closing it off. Is it, are there any final questions to the short discussion? something so I mean I think we did touch on all of the, the major points uh, you know I mean there's so much here that you know we can't we can't talk about everything uh, well the Jack of Hearts you brought the Craigbot in you want to tell Craigbot to go to hell now Thank you.